0: Hello and welcome to the 2016 Presidential Elections Podcast with Dr. Gary Rose. This podcast is brought to you by Shoe Square, Sager Heart University's virtual teaching and learning commons. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's election 2016. We started off the week with a debate from our potential vice presidents, which I think a lot of I think was one of the more decisive battles of this election so far. People seem to have very conclusive opinions on it. We also have seen a lot of movement in the polls thanks to both a presidential debate and a vice presidential debate in the last couple of weeks. So we're going to lead off into some swing states and see where this election is trending with only 33 days left.
1: Yeah, hi, Bridget. Um, wow. Things do not look good for Donald Trump right now. With 33 days left um, to November 8th, uh, there's a whole range of developments that have taken place, which are not moving in his direction. As you said, uh, the swing state polls are not favorable to Donald Trump. And here's some uh, some data from uh, Real, Real Clear Politics. The averages you know, based on multiple polls in 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 these various states. But right now, as we speak. Uh, Hillary is up by two points in Florida in Ohio uh, Trump is leading by two points that's to his advantage and that's the only one really Pennsylvania Hillary is up by six points now you gotta realize you know that's that is above the margin of error Uh, Michigan of course you know Trump as you well know um, has been waging what he calls a Rust Belt strategy But uh, I don't know how that's developing. Hillary is ahead in Michigan, again, according to the RCP average, by seven points. Uh, It's real close in North Carolina, within the margin of error. She's only up by 1.3 there. Colorado, she's pulled ahead by 3.3. But you know something? to uh, In Colorado, as far as the Trump campaign is concerned, he was down by... um, by a much larger margin, just maybe uh, two weeks ago. So it seems to be tightening up in Colorado, Nevada. She's ahead uh, by only 1.4, which is again within the margin of error. Interestingly enough, she's also up by two in Arizona. So, quite frankly, with the exception of Ohio, as we look at the uh, the Real Clear Politics figures, uh, things are not looking very good for for Donald Trump right now. You know. Um, even if, he, even if he is able to uh, reverse the, um, his downward slide in, in some of the states like Florida and, and North Carolina, Hillary can still win the electoral college, you know, and get that 270 electoral votes. So right now, I would say with um, you know, just slightly over a month left to the election, um, there, there's, there's things are looking, I would say, very good for, for Hillary Clinton.
0: Looking at these states, of course, the country has blue states and red states that neither campaign is terribly worried about at the moment, but there are these critical purple states in the middle, yeah. some of which, you know, could be a lost cause for either candidate. What? What states are critical for each one? You know, Donald Trump is up in Ohio, and no Republican has ever won the presidency without yeah. Ohio. What is what's, Is there a similar linchpin state for Hillary Clinton?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, as you mentioned, Ohio is critical uh, for, for Donald Trump, but Pennsylvania seems to be really the state that everyone is talking about. That if, if Trump cannot win Pennsylvania, there's a very real chance that he's going to lose the election. And that really does seem to be the linchpin, you know, with 20 electoral votes. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in many ways, you know, they've often said that there are three key states in this whole election, you know, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And right now, Hillary, I think, has two, you know, in her column. Uh, and again Ohio could flip back to who uh-huh. knows how that's going you know the governor of Ohio is not in, uh, is not working very hard for Donald Trump as you yes. know and so I think that really the linchpin if you will is, is Pennsylvania for her and if she can hold on to Pennsylvania if she can crack North Carolina as well uh-huh. you know North Carolina's turned into interestingly enough a swing state it used to be real red you know Republican territory Obama was able to win North Carolina if I recall correctly, in 2008, then Romney got it back right in in 2012, but it looks like maybe uh, the Democrats will reclaim North Carolina um, again. So I would say though that the uh, the real linchpin, as you as you say though, is is really Pennsylvania. I think so.
0: And I think that's really interesting. because I remember when I was looking at the original presidential debate coverage, we have data science, scientists that can pin these these critical swing voters down to a Science And they were saying, Philadelphian suburban women. That is who's going to decide the election in Pennsylvania, and it could very much decide in this country.
1: I think you're right. Suburban women and and white suburban women, what we're talking about really is going to be, I think, in many ways, one of the real critical swing votes in this election. Mm -hmm. And right now, as you say, there is a gender gap uh, going on between the two candidates. And right now, white suburban women, uh, and they do vote in very high numbers. Very important. Um, they, they clearly are in Hillary's column, and you know, uh, white, educated, suburban women. Those, those actually, those women at one time were voting Republican, but in this election, they seem to have clearly drifted over into the the Democratic column. And uh, I don't know how Trump's going to get them back, in light of um, you know. The whole gender issues that are being discussed in in conjunction with this campaign, so I think you're right that uh, they could they could prove to be the critical swing vote. You know, we know the cities are going to go for Hillary, but then it's the suburbs where the election will be decided, mm-hmm. and who's going to decide the outcome in these suburbs? Just as you said, white suburban women.
0: And it's interesting to look at because obviously Donald Trump is not well known for his great relationship with women, no. although he might disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, But that's, it's kind of interesting to see if that's playing down the ballot. Of course, you focus very much on the presidential election, but I think it's interesting. The GOP is like relying on on um, voters who vote both ways down the ballot. They're not looking for people who are going to vote one way, they're going to vote both ways on one ballot. How is, like, how does that dynamic play out when you're looking, you know, how are these swing voters going to impact this election if they can really get people to break party lines on a ballot? Yeah. What is that, who's going to benefit from that? Who could it hurt?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we do know that there's an awful lot of straight-ticket voting lately in, in American politics, but if they're were, if they able to pull uh, these white suburban women, as you say, who really should be in the Republican column onto, the, onto Hillary's side, that's probably going to uh, result as well in some, I think this is what you're getting at, and maybe some um, Interesting developments in the Senate and congressional races as well, yes. the down ballot races. Definitely. That's what you're getting at, and I think that uh, white suburban women, if they go with Hillary, will probably go straight down the ticket. You, you think know, so? yeah, well, I do I, because split ticket voting is is really declining, and we do know that the top of the ticket really structures the way people think about the down ballot, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, if we if uh, if we see some changes in the Senate races. I think uh, I think you've really nailed it. I think that is probably again the white suburban women who will be, who have been convinced to vote for Hillary. I think could possibly follow through, you know, and and then we could end up seeing possibly a Democratic Senate or maybe a tie, you know, fifty-fifty, mm-hmm. um, as a result of their voting behavior. In
0: which case the vice president becomes very critical. In, in,
1: in which case, should Hillary win, then Tim Kaine really is the tiebreaker and. Uh, the, the Democrats then control the Senate. You're right. So uh, I think you, you've talked about a very interesting demographic here. And you hear an awful lot about you know women voting and African Americans voting. But the but you really are, are very, I think, perceptive when you really target white suburban women. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, really, um, you talk about a linchpin. I think that could be really the linchpin in this election. That's a really great point on your part.
0: So this really decisive faction. Do you? You said before that they traditionally been Republican voters. Yeah, they're they have not traditionally Democratic. That's right. That's right. Many voters.
1: of them. Yeah. Well, a, not not totally Republican, but certainly. Uh, they at yeah. Least leaned. yeah. They lean. Yeah, they lean. Yeah. Is
0: this a permanent shift, or is this mm. just happens to this election? We oh, have, you wow. know, an abnormally crude man. <laughs> <against the> woman? <laughs> you know, is this, is this, a, is this yeah. a perfect storm, yeah. or
1: is this a shift? Well, oh, this is this is a great question, and as you know. Um, the project I'm working on, I think the last chapter has to be uh, what's become of the two parties yeah. as a result of what this. Do after this. Is there a realignment taking place? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it is possible that that is occurring. the uh, The composition of the Republican Party is changing, and I it is possible that uh, we do have white educated voters, many of whom w- could possibly be women, uh, could realign themselves with the Democratic Party, and um, I think the Republican Party after this election could possibly have lost a key constituency to the Democrats. Is it an anomaly? Is it just this election? Uh, You know, it's going to take another election for us to really know that. But if in fact the Republican Party is perceived as the party of Donald Trump among among this demographic that we're discussing right now, uh, they're not coming back. Mm-hmm. They're not coming back. It's gonna take a lot to reform that. It really will. It really will. It'll take a lot. Yeah, I think that uh, that's one of the real fascinating things about this election is the uh, the realignments that are I think going to you know play out here and and which can restructure the composition of the two parties when it's over. And uh, I can't wait to start analyzing that.
0: And we've spoken about this before on the podcast. Sure. But the millennial generation that has really that. If we showed up in our true numbers, we could saturate this election. We usually don't, but we could. How will this election, which is such an odd storm of an election, how is that going to shape us moving forward? Yeah,
1: again, you know, your generation's pretty liberal, that's for sure, on a whole range of issues. And uh, I, you know, we, I was looking at a Harvard study a while back. And it really did suggest that millennials, if they vote, they will probably, They, of course, you know, they supported Bernie Sanders largely, but without him in the race, but, you know, I think they feel they've kind of lost one of their heroes. But nevertheless, um, it, it's going to be a democratic vote. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, I mean, some, some will peel off and vote for Donald Trump, certainly. Some will vote for Gary Johnson. But in the end, I think your generation is... Going to align itself with Hillary Clinton, I do. I do believe that the turnout will be low, though. I think a lot of people are going to stay home in your generation. Oh, but in definitely. the end, but in the end, um, let's face it. It is a uh, a generation that's that's going to be participating more and more in politics, and I think it's going to uh, contribute to a uh, you know another another important dimension of the Democratic coalition. That's how I see it.
0: Do you think there'll be an increased emphasis in future elections on breaking? Party lines on a ballot with our generations. I mean, we make up such a large point of the demographic of, the, of the, the voting population at this point. No, we don't turn out at this point, but hopefully that will change mm. as we as we get older and as we you know get more yep. invested in the political process.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that kind of the Republicans' best hope? Is that how you save this generation, or is this really just going to keep going with this straight ticket voting?
1: Straight ticket. And a lot of it is, is simply due to the you know perception uh, of of the parties and the issues. Mm-hmm. And right now, um, you know, it is true. I do know a good number of young people that are voting for Trump, and they do so because they think he offers more hope in terms of jobs and so forth. But I think the much larger, broader issues you know the social issues that are out there, mm-hmm. even some economic issues. This whole notion of free college, whether or not that's a reality, that's another matter. I think it's really going to be pulling your generation into the Democratic column for years to come.
0: Interesting. And of course we had the VP debate yes this election, and I think it's really funny, look at all the headlines, and demographically Tim Kaine and uh, Mike Pence aren't all that different. You know, say, around the same age, white men both have family in the service. You know, both have had long careers in government, both very much faithful people, yes, and right. yet they come off as two very, they're very different politically. I think we saw a little bit of that in the debate, although there's a lot of interrupting going on. Uh, and I think that does speak to voters, and especially young voters, as seeing, and as, as we've mentioned before, these white suburban women who are going to be mm-hmm. so critical. It really speaks to women because Mike Pence and Tim Kaine could not be any more different on the, different. on women's issues. They're very
1: different, and what we saw the other night with the vice presidential debate was, uh, you know, a clear example of the polarization that exists between parties now. Mm-hmm. And you're right, the the demographic characteristics of the two individuals are similar, <laughs> you know, and and also uh, Pence being a governor, Kane was a governor, you know, uh, Pence no. was in Congress, Kaine is a senator. But yet, um, the position.
0: You take away their party affiliations; they're basically almost
1: the same person. Almost the same person. (laughs) Yeah, I know. They really are. Yeah, yeah. I know. But yet, their their views on issues are so diametrically opposed to one another. And um, I think that uh, you know, I I I would agree with you that the um, the divisions between Democrats and Republicans were were simply personified Mm -hmm. in many ways by those two candidates. Um, It was an interesting debate. But, uh, it, you know, I think that Trump needed a little, bit of, uh, uh, a little bit of help from Pence, and I think he got it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I'm looking at a CNN poll here in front of me, which showed that at least 48 percent of the people felt that Pence won the debate versus 42 percent of Kaine. Um, did he necessarily win on the issues? No, I don't think so. I think what really um, is reflected in this poll is a lot of people felt that Tim Kaine simply cut him off far too many times, Constantly. interrupted him, and the way he conducted himself at the debate I thought was really unfortunate. I was disappointed, quite frankly, too, with uh, the debate moderator that she didn't, uh, you know, get more control of this debate. But mm-hmm. someone in the morning said, well, you know, Tim Kaine <coughs> used to be a litigator, and so that showed up. But still, you know, even in a trial, you don't cut somebody off when they're speaking. Yeah. So that th- didn't That didn't. Wash for me at all. I just thought that Tim Kaine acted in a very, uh, you know, I don't know, a very boisterous and disrespectful way when when Mike Pence was speaking, mm-hmm. and I think that's reflected in the six point difference in this CNN poll. Now the question is, you know, did that poll make a difference? I'm, I'm sorry, did the uh, the debate make a difference in the uh, in, in in the way people perceive Trump and Hillary? Probably not. You no, know? really? I don't think we've ever had a vice presidential debate that has altered the outcome of um, of an election. People vote for the top of the tickets; they don't vote for the bottom. People, voters, a lot of them make their decisions, you know, based maybe on a performance in a debate. Some do, not maybe not a lot, but you know, mm-hmm. swing voters do. But you know, they're thinking more along the lines of how Trump and Hillary conducted themselves in the first debate and then what's coming this coming Sunday in the town hall forum uh, between those two, and Cain's debate and Pence's debate, you know, the two of them, it was interesting, entertaining. A lot fewer people watched that debate compared to um, the, the, the first Trump and Hillary debate. And so I would say that in many ways, despite the fact that Pence won, and you might think that he's going to help Trump's campaign. I'll have to say, and I don't mean to dismiss the importance of this debate, but I think in the in the longer range of things, it's somewhat inconsequential to the outcome.
0: Yeah. People should be paying more attention to the VPs this election because Trump would be the oldest president we've ever elected and Hillary Clinton would be the second oldest, not to mention as we said before, oh, yeah. should this come down to a decisive Senate vote, these people could actually have a significant influence in the administration beyond, you know, a ceremonial role.
1: Well, thank you very much. You're right. And, you know, I tell my students all the time that they should watch a vice presidential debate, not necessarily because, again, these people are structuring the outcome of the presidential election, but rather who, one of these individuals will be a VP and we do know that uh, of the 44 presidents that we've had uh, 15 of them have, have actually at one point or another have been a vice president.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know they have become president by way of either succession, you know death, assassination, and I believe, what is it, five I think have actually won their own elections. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so um, yeah, you you got to really study who the VPs are, and you should pay attention to you know, how, they, how they present themselves in a debate and so forth. Again, they're not going to affect the outcome of the election, but in the end, they could. one of these individuals could be president someday.
0: And I do want to note that I think it was really funny, one of the first headlines I saw the morning after the debate was, Mike Pence wins Iowa caucus 2020.
1: Oh, so I, yes. think
0: it's, I think it's really interesting, because you know, Pence was kind of a rescue operation by the Trump campaign. He you know. was pulled out of a governor race that he was expected to lose, yes. and now people are all of a sudden seeing this man as a potential presidential nominee in the next election, or t- you know maybe 2020 or 2024. There's a
1: lot of talk about that, and um, he presented himself so well, so even, you know, even-keeled and, and just so solid, Midwestern, small-town guy, spoke with so much respect and confidence. I do believe there are a good number of Republicans today who are probably already looking towards 2020. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, their gut feeling is that Hillary's going to win on November 8th and we're going to have a Hillary Clinton presidency. But 2020, you know, Pence could be maybe the solution to to reclaiming the White House. Yeah, but of course he's going to be up against, you know, um, Ted Cruz. And some others, too, who will vie for that position. But certainly, I think his stock among Republicans wound up substantially uh, the other night.
0: I think he really did start building a brand and a national name yeah, recognition that's that's right. that could really propel him into a solid place for the yeah. 2020 nomination. Sure.
1: And, and I would venture to say that there are probably some people who are thinking, as I did, quite frankly, that if he was at the top of the ticket and conducted himself that way, he could possibly beat Hillary Clinton on November 8th.
0: Interesting. If it was
1: the two of them toe to toe. I think a I lot of people so. are kicking themselves
0: right now. They might be. Run they might nomination?
1: be. Yeah, they might be. Yeah. You yeah. know, Mike Pence had actually thought about running for president uh, some time ago, but mm-hmm. there was that controversy that came out of Indiana involving religious freedom. Yes. Remember that? And so he, he kind of um, backed off from, from that. But Mike Pence, though, so there's a name. In the, and regardless of what happens in November, um, we're going to remember this performance.
0: It definitely, I think it did set a tone for 2020, which is really interesting to see how these these narratives build up, which you really explore in your book, by the way. I do. Having looked at your, your book coming out, you do talk about these narratives that really get set far before election season really hits us. Oh, my gosh, yes. I
1: mean, look, let's face it, you know, November 8th is the election. The, the next president, the 45th president of the U.S., will be inaugurated January 20th. January twenty first, <laughs> the two thousand the two thousand twenty election will begin.
0: Well, I think it's funny because actually Ted Cruz um, has maintained largely main control of his campaign infrastructure. It A has, lot of the other candidates kind of handed it over and you know sold their yeah. list. Ted Cruz is not, so yeah. he's definitely the the gears are turning for him.
1: His has begun already. Yeah. And you're right. Um, you know his endorsement of Trump I think is uh, clear evidence that. Um, if Trump goes down, he wants to uh, be the beneficiary of of, of his <laughs> millions of supporters,
0: right? Interesting. And of course, this election even isn't really going to be completely decided on November 8th. We are already wow. looking at several states, several key states that we spoke about earlier in this podcast, mm-hmm. that are already voting.
1: They're already voting. Right. I know. You know, I, I know you and I spoke briefly about this before we, we went on the air here, and um one figure I came across is that a third of the people will have voted, but you're telling me that uh, that, that figure's been adjusted to mos- possibly include up to 50% of the I, electorate now.
0: I've seen estimates saying that 40 to 50% of voters in this election will vote before November 8th.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and, you know, like George Will was criticizing this the other day, and I have to say I kind of agree with him a little bit, you know, is that we no longer have Election Day but now we have election season. We
0: really do. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you know, the, I think the um, the other question that emerges is um, who's going to benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And we'll know from exit polls. Now they don't they don't count the ballots, of course, before November eighth, but they do interview people who have voted early. Mm-hmm. And what do we have going right now? By the third week in October, we're going to have. Um, over 30 states voting. 37 is, is, states have, early, 37 voting. States and of have early voting.
0: Some of the earliest ones, those yeah. critical states you mentioned before, Iowa, Florida, and North Carolina. North Carolina
1: will, will yeah, are, they're starting up now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think already yeah.
0: something like 2.5 million ballots have been cast in Florida alone.
1: That's amazing, yeah. Uh, I, you know, we do know. That uh, there, there have been studies done of early voters, and apparently it does favor the Democratic Party because these are people that uh, maybe uh, have a more difficult time voting on a regular election day compared to Republicans. We do know that Republicans, as a rule, they, they tend to have higher turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's due to educational levels, or although some of that's changing, certainly um, class factors, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the Democrats are doing all they can to really, you know, promote, promote early voting, and they do benefit from it. Again, these are people that maybe some of them work shifts at night, you know, um, and some of them seem to have a more difficult time getting to the polls uh, compared to Republicans. And so it's not surprising that, I bet you anything, uh, that when they, we start hearing about these exit polls, and I'm sure we'll do a podcast on that, I'll bet you anything it's Hillary is the beneficiary of early voting.
0: I did see this morning in Politico, they were talking, it was in Politico, but it was a story by the AP News. Uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign already had its own analytics shop dedicated to predicting early voting and dedicated to extrapolating the results of this election from early voting. So they're hoping to know if she's going to win the presidency by like the end of October. That's amazing. Up to two to three weeks early, which is truly incredible.
1: Wow. Should it be that way, you know? that takes us into another debate should we have early voting you know we've been lowering the um, the barriers seems like year after year in terms of voting you know um, election day registration mm-hmm. like we have here in connecticut we don't have early voting but i think it's coming we have online voter registration
0: that's very convenient i've used and it then, it's
1: great yes we have some states that have mail-in voting now mm-hmm. So I guess maybe you know a question I'm asking you, maybe as a millennial, <laughs> is something being lost here?
0: I mean, as far as something being lost, I've only really been paying attention for the last two presidential elections. Yeah. So maybe my experience is a little limited. Personally, I you made me do this once. You made me jump in on a debate about early voting. Yes. In I, class. Re- I remember I was not, that. I was not supposed to be in on that debate. <laughs> you drafted me. Yeah, I remember I that. Yeah. Uh, but I defended it. I is it
1: devaluing? election day when we have all of when we make voting so simple and easy
0: i think looking at my generation and coming from my generation we one we are people who are used to having our lives facilitated by technology two we also feel very disengaged in the political process we feel like it's clunky we feel like politicians mm, don't listen yeah. to us okay we feel very disengaged from it overall i think making it easier making it more accessible can only benefit my generation you know, like I said, we're, we're a spoiled people. We've had smartphones since we were 10 years old. Maybe Doesn't this
1: seem like an entitlement?
0: It's a fundamental right of democracy. Yeah. As much as I think that people should, you know, be informed before they go to the polls, and yeah. I think people should do their best to have, take an active interest and at least, you know, the headlines going yeah, on in politics. Okay. I do think that voting is a fundamental right. And, and because if,
1: it's a right, it should be easy.
0: It should be easy. And if you want to really engage millennials, like I said, so many people I know who are my age are not voting this year.
1: Doesn't it make an election somewhat of a drive-through experience?
0: No, I don't think so. Because I think a lot of people will be encouraged you can engage through to, to you can engage with politics so much easily more easily through technology now. I mean, you can mm-hmm. follow Donald okay. Trump on Twitter, you can follow Hillary Clinton the Democrats, the GOP any amount of interest groups that represent an issue that you're particularly passionate
1: about? I remember an individual, I think he was from another country, yeah. uh, a legal immigrant I should say, and he, uh, voting was so important to him, he was so proud to be an American, on election day he would wear a suit wow. and go and vote. Mm-hmm. You know, it yeah. was such a, such an honor mm-hmm. for him to feel he had political power. Now, you know, you, you roll out of bed, and um, and uh, first of all, you know, I may not even be registered, but I can register on the day of the election. That's not an issue, you know. And and maybe uh, another person rolls out of bed and said, I think I'll swing by and vote today and then go to work, you know, early voting. Mm-hmm. You know, is something being lost here about the significance and the honor of, of participating in a free election, which so many countries don't allow.
0: I think, yes, there could be something being lost in the, the spirit of voting and the true patriotism that comes from voting. Yeah. But I think that can be also remedied through better civic engagement, better civic education. I know personally I defended, you know, same-day registration because I turned 18 about 10 days before the election in 2012. I, was, I turned 18, you know, very in late October right. on 2012. So for me, there wasn't – and I was also in college in other states. There wasn't that's really time true. for me to like mail in a ballot registration and stuff. Right, so I right. was able to register same day in DC where I was in school to vote. And that meant a lot and to me. And that's important. That meant yeah. so much to me I be able got to vote you on that first election. And Great I point. waited in line. Trust me. I did not like I it was effort to vote even with the same day voter same registration. Day. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I could come home and change my registration online and sure. just switch to a Connecticut registration, again, it just made it so much easier. And I know I have two siblings in college who are maybe not super as politically engaged as I am, and they're turning 18. So for them, it's also really great that I can send them resources that explain voting, explain how to do it from
1: college. Okay, perspective. all right, well, that's an that's interesting millennial perspective, and I respect that, I do. So a lot is happening, but right now, I think as we speak, here we are, 33 days out. Um, overall, we have touched on a number of things today, and you know, With the exception of Mike Pence's performance, not much is turning Donald Trump's way. Uh, The early voting is going to affect his campaign. The swing state polls, uh, I think, suggest that Hillary has got the momentum right now. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I think what we haven't examined and what we we haven't explained is why things are moving in her direction and not his. And I think a lot of that has to do... And is there time to fix it? Is can, there time to fix it? Can this ship still be righted? Yeah, yeah. Now you know, uh, just in the time remaining here, um, obviously his performance on the first debate, I think, definitely hurt him. And then on top of that, we have that major story that the New York Times broke concerning, uh, you know, the uh, the tax problem that he's had, or the, not problem, but the tax. That's not a problem for him, but the 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 tax advantage that he's had um, over the years. He took a uh, a massive a massive loss, uh, millions of dollars of, 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 of investments went down and so forth in 1995,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: apparently, according to federal law, exempted him from paying taxes for up to 18 years. Now, um, it, it hasn't been absolutely confirmed that he did not pay taxes for 18 years. I know all the articles that I've put my, that I've had my hands on said that he he was allowed not to pay taxes for 18 years. We
0: don't uh, know. We don't if know for sure did, if he did or not. Because he has not released his tax returns. That's right. We don't
1: know if he did. But nevertheless, uh, what was it—a $960 million loss yep. in 1995—and um, and then he was uh, under federal law, all legal, of course. He was allowed to uh, avoid paying federal taxes for up to 18 years. The Trump campaign has put out a statement, of course, saying that over the years he's paid millions of dollars in state, federal, property taxes, real estate lot of matters, jobs a lot of jobs, and, and a lot of the people who um, are working are paying taxes, and so you know he has contributed in that way. But nevertheless, the story itself doesn't help him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it has not helped him. The debate performance, really, the confluence of the two factors, I think, really explains why those swing state polls that we started with. Are moving in Hillary's direction. You raise a great question, and I suppose um, that's something we'll pick up on next time: is whether or not he's going to be able to reverse that, and what what does he have to do to reverse it? I think Sunday night, Sunday night, that town hall debate. I think it's critical. It is like beyond critical. Mm-hmm. If he loses two debates in a row and is perceived as ineffective as he was the first debate, uh, then. Uh, are we going to? Maybe we should start sounding the death knell in All this right. campaign. But I've also learned never to predict an election with absolute certainty.
0: And Trump, of course, has bounced back off so many other gaffes and he has every yes. You know, That's right. If any candidate could pull this out. Great even point. at this late hour in the election, it's going to be Donald Trump.
1: He's been written off too many times for us to say off it's hundreds over. Hundreds of times. At That's right. Point. So I'm not going to say it's over. You're right.
0: Never say die. All right. So we had, we have a couple more debates coming up. Early voting is starting. So if you aren't sure about the laws in your state, thirty-seven states do allow it. We encourage you to check that to make sure you're prepared for election day, which is thirty-three days and counting. For students here on campus, we do have a lot of internships and part-time job opportunities with uh, campaigns around Connecticut. If you're interested, we encourage you to come to the political science department and ask, and we'll connect you with those campaigns. Everyone else, do we have any events coming up, Dr. Rose, with the election?
1: Uh, There will be an election night uh, watch Mm -hmm. party. Um, I'm working on that. The various clubs that I advise, um, hopefully, we're all going to get together. And I'm working actually with a student who uh, has been interning with Fox News. And Fox has asked her to put on an election watch party. And I think Fox is going to pay for the refreshments. and oh, there so, you go, guys. Free so food. I think we're going to have a big election watch party on campus, too. Great. Yeah. yeah. We had a, a wonderful debate watch uh, the other night, mm-hmm. and uh, we teamed up with the AARP here in Connecticut. And we had a real cool intergenerational debate watch, which I know you were a part of. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, watch for, uh, there's going to be something big with, on election night.
0: All right, great. It's going to be a busy last 33 days, but man, are we excited. We hope to talk to you next week.